Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be talking quite a bit about the financial service space. You know, our founder today left the financial service space to really start I mean, the corporate side of it, to really start his own company. And we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, uh, every single aspect of being in the hyper-growth environment. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Karat Singh. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alejandro. Really appreciate you having me on the show. So originally born and raised in India. So tell us about your upbringings. Give us that walk through memory lane. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's right. So I grew up in India. I actually, I grew up on a farm uh, in the Punjab. I, and I still remember when I was a little kid, we had no electricity most of the time. And then we moved to Delhi and I came to the U.S. to go to college. So, so at what point do you come here to the U.S.? At what point does it make, you know, complete sense that, that it was an option and that you could do it? Because, I mean, it's quite a long trip coming all the way from India here. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so, you know, so when I was a little kid, actually, my dad loved tinkering with stuff. So he got a computer. So I started writing code on, on like a ZX81 that had two kilobytes of RAM. Um, so you wrote everything in assembly because nothing else actually did anything useful. And I just loved math and computers. 
And then I remember it was 91 or something when one of my friends had gone to the U.S. to go to college and no internet in those days. And he's like, oh, you know, you should apply to the U.S. for colleges. So I went to the American embassy in Delhi and I picked up a stack of applications. They all happened to be Ivy League colleges. I had no idea what they all meant. And I applied to them all. Uh, and I got into two, it was MIT and Harvard. So I just got super lucky. Wow. And I know that in India, there's a lot of pressure for education. So I'm sure that you know, when, you're, when you told your parents that you were accepted to one of the most regarded universities in the world, they were probably thrilled. Well, you know, my dad was like, you should go to IIT. I think it's a better university. So it, it was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So then, so then let's talk about that because you came here and you went to Harvard to do mathematics. So, so how was that a change of environment for you? I mean, coming here, I'm sure it was like a culture shock. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I thought it was amazing going to Harvard. It, and the, to me, it was just meeting so many smart people. And just like it was, you know, actually one of my math classmates won the Fields Medal. Uh, his name is Manjul Bhargav, and he's just incredibly smart. So I just felt like I learned so much from just being around smart people and smart professors at Harvard. So this is an amazing experience. So Goldman Sachs was definitely the first stop, and uh, you were there for quite a bit. And so, so tell us, how was that experience being at Goldman Sachs? After I was graduating from college, you know, I actually knew nothing about finance, math, and computers. Like, I loved writing software. And Goldman had this like small group sitting on the trading desk that was called Strats at the time. And um, you know, one of the guys who hired me there called me up and he says, you know, love your resume. You don't know anything about finance, but you know, your math and computer science is pretty good. We are a bunch of rocket scientists. You should come here. So I was like, okay, great. Uh, you know, finally someone uh, uh, like just like Harvard, right? Like, I love being around smart people, and I think that was the most amazing thing about going to Goldman. Everyone there was super smart. They were all like literally rocket scientists. Uh, there was, you know, a guy who had a PhD in aer uh, aeronautics. And, you know, there's like actually my partner, Mark Higgins, who co-founded Beacon with me. He has a PhD in astrophysics. So we were sitting on the desk and actually I used to sit in the office where Fisher Black used to sit before that. And, you know, as you can imagine, so this is sort of late 90s. You know, everyone is just writing all these like cool derivatives models still use like Lotus 1, 2, 3 to price things. So for some reason, they let me be one of the lead developers on this like platform called SecDB, and I was 22 years old. So we wrote everything ourselves at those times. Like we wrote our own interpreter for programming languages. We wrote our own databases. We wrote our own um, distributed computing infrastructure. It was super fun because you would sit on the desk and you'd hear the salespeople shouting to the traders for prices and then figure out, you know, how do you optimize this? How do you make sure that, you know, what they can, price for their clients is the same thing that they book and the same thing that they can manage risk on. And, they, you know, these are complex, fun math problems. So just super, super fun. Now, in this case, I mean, you not only went to Goldman Sachs, but then you went to JP Morgan and then you went to Bank of America. I mean, you've been in some of the biggest uh, banking institutions out there. So one of the things that, that I thought was really interesting is that Within each one of those institutions, you were kind of like an entrepreneur. I mean, you were building, you know, your own thing and, and, and the teams around it, too. So why, why, why do you think it took you so long to, to say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm already building companies within companies to a certain degree. Why not starting my own? Honestly, I came here as an immigrant. And I think uh, it's much, it felt a lot safer to be at a big company, to be honest. Uh, and, but also, we were doing really, really interesting things. So, you know, at Goldman, for example, I, I don't think I could have learned what I learned without being at Goldman at the time. 
And so, you know, being at a bank where you're like in sort of the cutting edge of like derivatives trading. So we did FX, we did rates, we did equities, we did credit. That was a really unique experience. I think I was very fortunate to be able to be there while building this derivative system called SecDB, which still runs all of Goldman's derivatives front to back. And then, you know, when we went to JP, literally, as you said, it was like a startup in the bank. We said, let's build a new trading system from scratch so that the technology can move at the same speed as the market. And that was super fun. You know, did that for four years. Uh, like literally these businesses grew to a billion dollar business. And I remember when JP bought Bear, like literally in one weekend, we could take the entire FX options portfolio and import it into Athena. And so... Like there was always just these really fun problems to solve and computational, like a lot of scale, same thing at Bank of America. And then eventually I think I realized that I was doing the same thing everywhere. And the reason we were doing it is because there wasn't a platform out there. And that's what I'm passionate about is like building platforms to enable people. So I think at that point decided to do that. And actually also I quit, I think the same week my daughter was born from, from Bank of America and it was just a very nice time. I spent, you know, three months with her when she was really little and, and we started Beacon. So I always joke, Beacon, she's six months older than Beacon. <laughs> wow. Now, now in that, in that sense, you, you mentioned earlier that it was always nice and safe to be under a corporation, you know, and have that, that level of safety. So I guess it's interesting because here you go, you know, you start your own family, you have your daughter or you, or, or you were about to have your daughter and uh, you give your notice. So what, 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 what do you think gave you that sense of peace to know that everything was going to be all right? You know, I think actually one nice thing about having worked for banks for 17 years is that I felt like I could take a little bit of time to say, like, even if I wanted to go back, I could. And uh, I also just wanted, uh, you know, I, actually, I really write, even now, I, I work all the time uh, because it's really fun. Like, as I, I write code in my free time, but every day at five o'clock, I stop and I have dinner with my kids and that's very nice. I hear you. Now let's talk about Beacon then. Like, like how did, how did it come in the picture and what was that process for you to say, you know what, I think this thing has legs. I'm going to go for it. So I think what, like it was maybe like whatever in summer in 2010 and all, and what we found was that if you're a top tier market maker, capital markets, whatever, you know, like, it's very hard to find a vendor system that does what you want. And to me, derivatives in, two th in the 90s were really interesting because if you could trade a new derivative that nobody else could, that was your edge. And you were coming up with all these brilliant models and all these things to, to create these derivatives markets. But, to, but in 2010 and now 20, those are all multilateral trades. If I'm trading it, someone else is trading it. There's a market price that we must agree on. And there's a lot of shared pain there. And banks have spent like literally 20 years building this tech and their counterparts, in a sense, don't have access to that same level of technology. And, you know, having been part of building this, it felt like we should build an open platform like this where people can add their own models. They can take they can take our reference models and extend them and also be cloud native. You know, I've been through this journey of like setting up data centers and running compute at scale. And like literally, you know, running 40,000 cores for like risk calculations overnight. And for the, with the cloud, I feel like I'm a kid in a candy store. You know, these are all like software defined APIs. And we want to make it easy for people to access them for infrastructure to be as elastic as the market and have an open, transparent platform. And that's actually something I care a lot about, transparency and openness. 
like we are the only vendor who gives all our clients our source code because I think they're not our competitors. You want them to see how we do things. We learn stuff from that. So, you know, a really big believer in this transparency and sort of open source community. So here with uh, Beacon, essentially for the people that are listening to get it, I mean, what, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? So we sell a platform that allows you to risk manage, price, and create derivatives primarily. And so our clients are banks, asset managers, hedge, fund, hedge funds, insurance companies. So it's basically software as a service or platform as a service that's cloud agnostic. And so we are a very global business. Uh, you know, since we started, we had like a Tokyo, London, New York office. Uh, we have, so we have a presence in APAC, EMEA, and the US, sorry, North America. And in your case, I mean, you, you've been always uh, on the technical side, you know, up until Beacon. Uh, how, how has it been for you as a journey to kind of like go from the technical side more to the business side? I know that that transition is not an easy one. Yeah, you know, that's a great question, actually. And, you know, I never really thought of myself as, as like being a CEO, right? And I'm not sure I still do. But what I did realize is that to be a good developer, you have to be a salesperson. Because you're selling your ideas, you're telling somebody else, you know, I understand your problem, I can make it easier for you to solve if only you use this like little widget I built for you. And the thing that I find the most fun about Beacon as being a technology business is we're in the business of solving problems for people that we are really good at. And I learned so much from talking to my clients. Uh, you know, we were super lucky. We had our first enterprise client, like nine months after we started, there were four of us, literally, and we sold Beacon to like a $50 billion insurance company. And I think so much respect for those folks. They put so much trust in us. And then PIMCO was one of our first early investors. And like, I don't know, I count myself very fortunate every day because I get to talk to the smartest people in the industry and I learn a lot from them. So, I don't know, it's been super fun. Now, on the investment side, how much capital have you guys uh, raised to date? So we just finished our Series C, uh, where we raised um, a total of uh, 56 million uh, from Warburg and Blackstone, and uh, some of our other investors also participated. And then Centena was our Series B. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm trying to calculate. It's <laughs> I should know this off the top of my head, but I'm not a finance person. So well, I, think it's, to, I think it's close to 100 million. That is right? correct. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, and 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 in this journey, I mean, you were talking about Series C, Series B, you have the Series A. How has it been the process of going from one financing cycle to another? How was that for you guys? You know, actually, it's, it, it was amazing learning experience. So you know, we bootstrapped the business originally. I think what was really interesting about all our financing rounds were we never expected to raise money when we raised money. So we always sort of were very careful on how we grew the business organically. And then our first financing round was PIMCO, actually. And um, it all started because the CEO of PIMCO reached out to us, like literally on email. <laughs> and he, he's amazing. I think he just felt like Beacon was the right technology. And, you know, as he said that, you know, our bis core business is technology. PIMCO's core business is finance. So, so he would love to invest in us. And I think there was a sea change for us. Like, you know, actually, they set up a board. We actually... Uh, had our first CFO actually at the time. <laughs> Before that, we had no CFO. You know, thinking about budgets and investments and what business lines we are in and how to, you know, figure out go-to-market strategies. Uh, so I think, and th that was that was that was amazing. 
And then our series B again was to say, okay, we are very much finance focused. Let's try to look for a VC investor who can help us on the growth side and all that. And again, so the stars aligned and Santana came, came uh, actually to invest in us almost before we started our series B round. Um, and I think they just brought a lot of this like, you know, Silicon Valley growth equity technology in like discipline to us. And like finally last year, uh, we were pretty conservative through COVID. And, you know, since we started taking investment, like we've had almost 2x revenue growth every year. Uh, so it's it's been quite a wild ride, you know, and like we were conservative in hiring through COVID just because of the situation. But like over the last year, we've doubled in headcount as well. I think it's just been interesting. Like I knew everybody at Beacon. I could talk to everybody. Like, I, you know, I knew their names. I knew their family. And now it's harder, right? Like there's so many more people who I, I know less. And that, that's, I find that hard, by the way. Because, because how many people do you guys have now at the company? We're about 178 now. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, talking about people, uh, in this case, I mean, going back to the investment side, I mean, when you have people like Warburg Pincus, you have, uh, you know, folks like Pimco. I mean, I'm sure that uh, now, I mean, uh, the, the the board is, it, it must be like uh, running super smoothly. So, So I guess an effective board, what does it look like? I, I, you know, our board members are great. And I think since the beginning too, since PIMCO invested, I think they've been very supportive. I think their view has been that we are good at technology and how do they help us fill in the gaps in the things that, you know, we can do better, like finance, marketing, go to market and just scale, you know, actually keeping the culture that you have as you grow, uh, you know, the things that are good about Beacon, sort of the transparency, the flat hierarchy, but, you know, just being able to scale our operations, our go-to-market. So I think to me, it's really just adding more and more experience as we need it. And that's why it's been amazing to have Santana join Blackstone, Warburg. Uh, they bring unique perspectives to it. Now, in, the, in this case, you know, as, as you guys are thinking about people and, and hiring and, and so forth, I mean, how do, you, how do you manage to really grow so fast the headcount 
but then also make sure that perhaps the culture and the values of the business are not getting lost? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. We, it's, it's very hard. <laughs> and I think what's been good for us in a way is that we've been very diverse and, you know, also just geographically distributed since the beginning. You know, we, we, like I said in the beginning, we had a Tokyo office as well. We had a Japanese company that uh, called Simplex, which has been one of our earliest partners that sold Beacon to Japanese banks. So from the beginning, we had Japan, we had EMEA, we had um, New York. And so I think just the diversity of people at Beacon geographically and just in like just other ways too makes it easier for us to attract people. Um, so in fact, if you, if you look at our management team, there's seven people on it and there's five women and, and two guys. So I, I think, you know, we've been like, I think really good at continuing to care about diversity and maintain it. Uh, and that also makes it easier for us to hire and keep that culture. Now, in that sense, too, you know, when 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 you're like in the hyper growth mode as well, I mean, how, how do you think about like building relationships ahead of time so that because as they say, as the saying goes, when when you need to hire people and you go out on recruiting and all that stuff it's probably too late. And it's all about like building perhaps those relationships ahead of time. So how do you go about doing that so that whenever you know, you need to make that placement. You already have the person and you're already ma- ready to make that phone call. It's interesting because it's a very small world in a sense. I, and I think everyone who does stuff in this finance, derivatives, technology, cloud, like a lot of people just know each other. And I think to me, a lot of my job too and other folks is like talking to folks. And, you know, like I, I feel like exchanging ideas with people and being open makes people con- like, that's how you keep yourself relevant and also then know who you should talk to when you're trying to grow a business and it also makes it fun (laughs) and now in terms of like the the for example the market you know that you guys are playing in i mean what what do you see what do you see things heading as a whole yeah you know that's a great question like i think it's been really interesting there's been a lot of consolidation in in sort of financial services right like fis and 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 other folks and i you know i I think again, if you look at derivatives, it's it's you know sort of like the web 1.0 versus web 2.02, right? Like everyone is opening up, they're trying to create APIs, they're trying to create trading platforms. But I still think what's missing is this common platform which says, you know, you can actually extend models on whatever your edge is. And you know, so for example, you're like just pricing a swap is not your edge anymore. Your edge is some unique bit of data that you can put in, decide how you build the curve or like how you look at risk or at benchmarks. And so I, I think, again, the, where this thing should go to say is that you want to be able to customize the things that are unique to your business, but have everything else essentially out of the box. Now, how would you say that COVID, you know, perhaps has uh, pushed things? I, in which direction would you say? I mean, I'm sure that it probably has changed a bit the way that you guys interact um, internally as a team because you know this is not the probably the the company that you were running now i mean now post covid obviously it's completely different than before covid right i mean you've been at it now for about eight years so uh, i'm sure that the way that you guys have thought about you know uh, interacting with one another and uh, and also um meeting and and all of that has probably changed a bit so so how would you say that it has changed things for you yeah, it's been a big change. When we first started, like literally, you know, 
worked in banks all the time. So like being in the office all the time was super important, right? And uh, it was pretty interesting when COVID first happened. Actually, we were like, I think first week of March, we decided we'll be fully remote. We are a tech company. We can afford to do that. We're very lucky to be able to do that, actually, because our business is technology. It's just as easy to do it from home as from work. And so much respect for all the folks who actually have made the economy run for us. Like, you know, people in front lines, healthcare, grocery stores, and all the essential services. And But for us, I think the big change then was that you have to be very intentional about time and meetings. And, and as you hire people as well, how do you onboard them? Because uh, there's not that, you know, onboarding through osmosis, just because you're sitting in the office, you hear what people are doing. So I think that's been a big change. But we've, you know, more than doubled our headcount since COVID. And so I think there's probably more people here at Beacon than there were before COVID. So I, I think it's just, you know, continuing to keep that culture, make sure people interact, make sure that, you know, you connect the right people, which you can do through Zoom and have now start having some meetings in person. I don't think we'll ever go back to full work in the office, right? But we will end up being much more intentional about getting together, you know, get together for a purpose, whether it's like social interaction, whether it's like solving a problem. So that's definitely changed a lot. But I think one thing that helped us with all this was we were always very global, right? Like I had, you know, talked to our Tokyo team. I worked very closely with them. So we were already used to working over Zoom and having this sort of, you know, virtual thing. But I haven't been to Tokyo for two years, which is a shame. <laughs> so we'd like to start doing that again. How, how many offices do you guys have? So we have uh, five offices now, uh, New York, London, Tokyo, Warsaw, and India. Uh, and how do you go about culture because obviously the culture on every office is different so how do you make sure that the culture from one office to another is, is not so different from the actual headquarters here in new york you know actually by the way i i don't think culture needs to be all the same i think everyone is different so i i think yeah. to me it's mostly just about recognizing cultural differences and and you know respecting them and and working together um but i think one thing again important things are you know integrity respect, transparency. Those are super important to me and making sure that, you know, we, we put our clients first. And I think that's sort of the minimum. <laughs> now, now your background in mathematics, I mean, you, you are all about resolving problems. So I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be a very interesting one for, for the entrepreneurs that are listening right now. And as you're thinking about problems and you're dealing with problems every single day, all day, what is that thought process that goes into it in order to really get to a potential solution, especially when you have like a massive breakdown? Like what is your process in order to really, you know, come up with, with the answer or perhaps with the path to follow? So I'm very much a detailed person. So I, like personally, I try first, you know, if I have a problem, like I, I like having time to think about it first. So I'll go read up a bunch of stuff, make sure I can educate myself on the problem. and then when it actually comes time to discuss it and try to at least get a high level view of the problem we are trying to solve, because if you can't articulate it, you can't solve it and then get into the details. And like, I think if you can't go all the way down and if it's not consistent, then you're like treading on unstable ground, right? And you can't go forward anymore. So, um, but I think it's actually that problem framing that's almost the hardest thing to do. Once you can frame a problem, you can solve it. And then once you framed it, then being able to understand the details all the way down. And you know whether that's, so I, I knew nothing about finance or fundraising or like 
legal docs and had to learn that, but it's all kind of fun. Like I remember our first bank contract was like a 250 page legal doc. <sighs> and, you know, we didn't really have any lawyers. So I read the whole damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm sure you probably needed a nap or two after all that legal language. Eh? <laughs> oh, there was a lot of coffee involved. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And music. Now, so actually, I, I love to listen to music. So I put on opera, drink coffee, and 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 read legal contracts. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, now, in terms of, we were talking about it before on where things are heading, you know, obviously as a whole, uh, from a market perspective, I guess, you know, that, that reminds me more of, um, of your, like, imagine, you know, you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, let's say, five years later, where the vision of Beacon is fully realized. What does that world look like? So right now, if, if, if I look at a bunch of our clients in capital markets and derivatives, insurance, hedge funds, asset managers, banks, each of them has their own siloed infrastructure to ingest market data, to ingest trades and positions, value derivatives, and then come up with a trading strategy. And if I think about, like, to me, what you want is a common platform that says, I know how market data works. If you have new market data, you can plug that in and do what-if scenarios or change your models without having to build the whole stack from scratch. And again, I think some of these things are super interesting because they're bilateral trades. So there's really no value to every company building that themselves, right? So what we really want is the platform that's flexible enough for folks to say, here's how, if I'm trading with Alejandro, I can trade you know an equity structure note and on my side i know how to risk manage it but i can also agree with him on what the price is and what the risk is and what the settlement is um and i think the other thing that i find super interesting is all these things are very compute intensive and rather than data centers and managing machines and infrastructure that's always on we have this cloud agnostic model that says spin up compute on demand doesn't matter which cloud provider it is even, right? Whether it's AWS or Azure or GCP, that gives you disaster recovery, gives you more resilience, and also lets you take advantage of all the features that you have. Like, you know, there's some cool machine learning things on Google. You want to run just that on Google and bring it back on. So I think it's just a very connected world now, and there's all these APIs and software-defined infrastructure. And so being able to take advantage of that to solve problems, commercial problems for the market, to give people value, I think is, is really what, what you know, we think we can really enable. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, perhaps to that moment where you were giving your notice and you were thinking about what was going to be next and, 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 and perhaps even about building a business. Imagine you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger Kirat and, uh, and, and, and perhaps giving that younger Kirat a piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? don't be afraid of trying new things and you know just actually i think i've been very fortunate to work with great people and like we can like if we think this is the right thing to do we should just do it and not get sidetracked or take shortcuts sometimes <laughs> but it's like stay the course and like you know like i think just just trust yourself right and i think that just removes a bunch of angst i trust the team Yes. I love it. Very profound. So, Karat, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Probably easiest to find me on LinkedIn. 
Kirat Singh on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, hey, Kirat, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. Re really appreciate the time as well. Uh, and a pleasure speaking to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.